John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42. Here is the scene. Perfect Jesus, at this point, has been betrayed. He has been handed over. He has been condemned. And now he has been killed on a cross between two criminals outside of the city of Jerusalem in a place of rejection. Verse 30, the verse before our verses today says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so Jesus is dead in our text today. There are two sections here. The first is verses 31 through 37 with the focus on the piercing of Christ with a spear. And the second section is verses 38 through 42 with the focus on the burial of Christ. So we will read through both of them and I will explain some things and then we'll go back and look at something John wants to show us. So we'll go through these two sections and make sure we understand what we're hearing, what we're being told, but then we'll go back and Lord willing, see what John wants us to see in this text. He's showing us something. And that is like, as one preacher has put it, it is like in this text, it is like the gold that we have to go find in the mountain and bring down to the valley. So we will be looking for gold today. Let's look at our first section. In verses 31 through 37, we'll go a verse at a time. John 19, verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So what is happening here? The death of Jesus is happening right before a Jewish feast. Maybe the greatest Jewish feast of all. They had many. But this is happening, the death of Jesus, before perhaps the greatest Jewish feast and it's called the Feast of the Passover. But back in Exodus, we can read about God's people, the Israelites. They were enslaved in Egypt. And God rescued His people out of Egypt. And you remember part of His plan was sending ten plagues on Egypt. The last plague finally broke the will of the Egyptian Pharaoh on that very last night when God came and killed the firstborn of everyone 
and everything in Egypt. And so you remember Pharaoh was finally broken and he temporarily, he let God's people go. Now on that night that we can read about in Exodus 11 and 12, when God came in that last plague and killed the firstborn of everyone and everything in Egypt, He passed over the homes of His people. And so this annual remembrance is of their great deliverance. And it's known as the Passover. So this is the Passover feast. That's what is happening around this death of Jesus. Now verse 31 tells us that this hour of Jesus' death, because He just died, the verse we just read tells us that this hour of Jesus' death fell on, look with me, the day of preparation. Which means that all the Jews on this night, which is a Friday night, all the Jews on this night would be preparing for the Passover meal, which would be the next day, which also this year happened to be a Sabbath, a Saturday, which makes this Sabbath a really special Sabbath, and John calls it a high day. So this is a huge night, and this is a huge day. So are you with me so far? It's Friday night on the day of preparation. The Jews are preparing for the Passover meal the next day. So, why don't the Jews want anyone on these crosses? That's what they come and ask Pilate. Can we get this mess cleaned up? Can we get these men off of these crosses? And you find the answer to that question, why the Jews want these men off the crosses. If you go back to the Old Testament and read the following instructions given by God to His people in Deuteronomy chapter 21. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, Verses 22 and 23, God said this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. That's where these three men, including Jesus, are, right? On crosses. They've been hanged on trees. His body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. See? So God has said that a dead body left on a cross overnight, it makes your whole land unclean. The Jews do not want that, especially on the day of the Passover. And so they go to Pilate and ask to have their legs broken so that the bodies can be taken away. So we've got another question. What's with the broken legs? 
Why are they asking for these men's legs to be broken and then taken away? So let me try to explain that. Remember, these men have all been crucified earlier on this day. Normally, the cross took a long time to kill someone. More than an afternoon. In fact, the cross was intended that way. It was meant to be a very slow and very agonizing death. But, the breaking of a man's legs would accelerate his death. So I'm sure you've seen pictures or artistic renderings of someone, maybe Jesus on the cross. And so you know what this looks like. A man would be hung on a cross and he would have his arms outstretched and then he would have a nail put through his hand or his wrist into the horizontal cross beam. And then on the vertical cross beam, down towards the bottom, there would be a very small platform. A platform just large enough to maybe have the balls of your feet on. And then typically the legs would be tied or a nail put through both feet or both ankles into the cross so that he was fastened there. Now one of the things that happened as a man hung on the cross for hours upon hours upon hours is that you can imagine hanging by your arms, it became extremely difficult to breathe. So in order to take a breath, a man had to push down on his legs and pull up with his arms in order to take a breath. So the little platform for their feet was meant for torture. It was meant to help the victim live longer and experience more pain. So, if death needed to be sped up, soldiers would be sent out with iron mallets. They would strike the victim's legs, which would make them unable to push themselves up to take a breath, and they would usually be dead within minutes. So that's why the Jews are asking for the legs to be broken so that these men will die quickly. This is not an act of mercy on their part. They just want the mess cleaned up for the Passover. And it is interesting that they are so committed to observing God's law. In this case, by accelerating the death of God's only Son. To obey God's law. Verse 32 tells us that Pilate, surprisingly, he grants their request and soldiers are dispatched to break the three pairs of legs. And I said surprisingly, it's surprising that Pilate gave permission for this to happen because 
normally the Romans would have left Jesus on the cross for days. And the reason they would have left him on the cross for days is because ultimately he was convicted, he was condemned for sedition, for leading a rebellion. And so other victims of the cross, the Romans would let Jews take them down and they would bury them outside the city in a shallow, shameful grave. But if someone was found guilty of rebellion against the empire, the Romans did not take them off the cross typically. They left them on the cross to die and then to rot and then to be eaten by vultures as an example to everyone of what happens when you rebel against the empire. So we don't know why, but surprisingly, Pilate grants their request and sends the soldiers to break their legs. Moving on to verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Jesus is already dead, which is surprising. Again, relatively speaking, Jesus had died quickly. This normally would have taken much longer. Everyone assumed, right, that his legs would need to be broken. But we know, verse 30, he had already given up his spirit. His death had already been accelerated by the severe beatings. His death had already been accelerated by the outpouring of God's wrath. It took strength and sobriety for Jesus to last as long as he did. So there's no need to break his legs. There's no need to break Jesus' legs. But the soldiers, of course, still need to make sure that he's actually dead. To find out, they push a spear up into his side. And we're told the blood and water came out, which is apparently a proof of death because after death, the fluids in the body begin to separate and collect. And so what they see proves that Jesus is really dead. There might be some symbolism with the water and the blood. John has talked about water and blood before. Uh, Jesus has talked about water and blood. I'm not sure what the symbolism is. And I don't think that that is even John's main point. I don't think that's the gold in this text. But D.A. Carson is probably right when he says this. The flow of blood and water from Jesus' side may be a sign of the life and cleansing that flow from Jesus' death. Now that is what 
Augustus Top Lady had in mind when he wrote this verse that we sing here from his song, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, also picked up on this water and blood, and he said in one of his hymns, My Savior's pierced side poured out a double flood. By water we are purified and pardoned by the blood. Now, verse 35 jumps out. Verse 35 is very different from the other verses because in verse 35, John sort of interrupts his narrative with a personal testimony, doesn't he? He stops in the middle of his narrative and said, hey, this really happened. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not making this up. I was, and we know this, I was right there at the foot of the cross. I'm giving you these details. I was there. Verse 35. He who saw it, he's talking about himself, has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. So he's emphatic about this. Why is he so emphatic? Well, one reason we'll get to later, but one obvious reason is that John wants to emphasize that Jesus really died. This is so important. Jesus really died. Think about this. After Jesus' death, over the next 40 years or so, many men who claimed to see him after his death were killed. For some 40 years or so, men were being killed after they said that they saw Jesus after his death. And they were killed in part because they refused to deny the resurrection. It changed them. Eleven of the twelve disciples all tied saying, no, I'm not going back on this. I saw him after his death. So that brings up the question, well, did he really die? He appeared after the cross. And you'd have any of you would have a very difficult time disputing that historically. That is typically not how this is dealt with historically. He appeared to many after this happened. Whether he died, didn't die. It's incontrovertible that he appeared to many people. And so those appearances of Jesus after this cross... That needs to be explained. And they are, of course, explained in the Bible by saying he was resurrected. 
He died, and then he rose again. He was brought back to life. But historically, there have been other less convicting and less dangerous explanations. Docetism was one of them, and John has probably bumped into that heresy by the time he's writing this book. Docetism was a Gnostic heresy that was trying to deal with these appearances of Jesus that couldn't be denied. But the way they dealt with these appearances of Jesus was by claiming that he did not have a real body and therefore did not really die, but only appeared to die. And that's not an uncommon explanation even today. A lot of people still say this. It was just an apparition. It was just an illusion. It was just a hallucination. But you see, no one is denying that people saw him after the cross. They saw him. It's historical fact. So, well, that must have been the cross, must have been a hallucination. It must have been an apparition or one. This is what most Muslims believe. He passed out on the cross. He swooned, it's called, on the cross. And then they took him down thinking he was dead, put him in the tomb. Turns out he had only fallen asleep or something. No, John says. That's his point. He really died. So that's what the spear is about. That's what the emphatic testimony in verse 35 is about. That's what the detailed account of his simple burial that's coming up. That's what that's about. John is making it clear. Jesus really died. We must be certain of his death. And so friends, you need to be certain that Jesus really died. Some people deny this, I think, because it seems irrational. Well, you can't die and come back to life. That's irrational. It's unreasonable, and so I can't accept that. That's impossible. But others, I think, others deny the death and resurrection of Jesus. Remember what I said before for less convicting and less dangerous explanations. It goes like this. If Christ died and rose again, then he is everything he said he was. He is God. He is the Lord. And I must submit to him. And so what do I do? So there's no way that he died. It's more subjective for many, I think. I can't accept that. Because if I do, I'll have to obey God. And submit to him. Do you see how important it is for us? Jesus really died. This kindled faith in John. And John wants it to kindle faith in you. Hear it again, verse 35. 
He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth. Why? That you also may believe. So moving on to verse 36. In verse 36, John tells us that this is all a fulfillment of prophecy. John brings this up throughout his account. Verse 36 and 37. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And this may be a quote from Psalm 34, 20. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And that's a quote from Zechariah 12.10. So these very events John is telling us were spoken of. Think about this. These very events that just took place were spoken of and written down hundreds of years before. So what just didn't happen? The breaking of his legs. And what just did happen, the spear that pierced his side, were both a fulfillment of Scripture. They were said and written down centuries before this took place. Which should encourage our faith. So that's our first section. On the piercing of Christ with a spear. Our second section I said is verses 38 through 42, which focuses on the burial of Christ. And here we are introduced to two men, Joseph in verse 38 and Nicodemus in verse 39, who we've met before. Let's start with Joseph, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. But we know from the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, remember they all wrote gospel accounts. We know a little more about this Joseph from the other gospel writers. We know that he was very wealthy. In fact, he owns this very expensive, never-used family tomb that he's going to give as a gift to Jesus. So we know Joseph is very wealthy. We also know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the council, we're told. Now, the fact that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, that helps us here in John understand how he had access to Pilate. So he was wealthy. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And then we learn here from John that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. We're told that Joseph comes and asks for the body of Christ. Now think about that. Who is asking for the body of Christ. Not one of the twelve disciples. Not his brothers. Not his mother. Not any members of his own family. 
Who is asking for the body of Jesus? A member of the Sanhedrin. Pilate says, okay. So Joseph comes to the cross with servants, of course. He takes down the body of Jesus and he carries them off. So next we have Nicodemus, who was also likely a member of the Sanhedrin. Remember, Jesus calls him the great teacher. He was at the very least a Pharisee. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Do you remember that? Jesus has met Nicodemus before. That was back in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus had, had paid Jesus a secret visit. He came under the cover of night. And then in John chapter 7, he's also mentioned where he sort of defends Jesus. And now he appears to be a disciple of Jesus. So he has gone from... Uh, a, a desire to a, a defense of Jesus to now being, it looks like, a disciple of Jesus. So at the end, along with Joseph, Nicodemus shows up also with servants, of course, and he meets Joseph with 75 pounds of spices. Which, by the way, is an uncommon amount, an unnecessary amount. This is the amount that you would use for some kind of a royal burial. Why is he bringing so many spices? Well, Jesus is a king. The sign was true. King of the Jews. He knows it. And what do they do? Verses 40 through 42, here is the little quiet funeral of Christ. Very simple. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb, Joseph's tomb. I inserted that. This is Joseph's tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, Verse 42, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So if you can imagine this, Jesus' body would have been taken down. And of course, they would have had to spend quite a while washing his dead body. It was filthy. Horrific wounds. So they had to wash off the body of Jesus, and then he was going to be laid in a tomb. And the way this would look is it would probably be a, a very small door that was carved out of rock, and on the inside, a tomb was carved out of the rock. The door would be short, maybe waist high, and you would walk through that little door, and you'd find yourself in a little pit surrounded by three ledges that would also be about waist high. And they would set someone on one of these ledges and they would wrap them up with cloths and some spices, almost like a, a mummy, if you've seen a mummy. 
And then they would leave the body there on one of the ledges, very different, obviously, from what we do today. They would leave the body, and then someone would return months or even years later after the body had completely decomposed. They would take the bones that were left. They would put those bones in a bone box, which would sometimes be left in the cave, maybe in a corner or maybe somewhere else in a very special place. And so you could continue to reuse this tomb as a family tomb. So Joseph and Nicodemus, they took Jesus, they obviously washed him up, and his body was wrapped up with cloths, with spices between the cloths, which were to help hide the odor of decomposition. So there it is. That gets us through those verses. That is the explanation, that is the story that John has told us when I said we wanted to get to something else. Okay, we understand, John, what you're telling us. What are you trying to show us? That's the content. What's the intent? What's your intention here, John? And we know that your pen's just being carried along, Peter told us, by the Holy Spirit. So what is it that God is, is showing us through you, John? Why are you giving us these details, even 2,000 years later, where's the gold in the mountain? So let's bring that gold down into the valley. It may be obvious to you, but probably not. Because John does not just come out and say it. He shows it. So let me try to mount the evidence for you. Let's see what John sees. First, look at verse 31 and verse 42. If you don't have your Bible open yet, it's going to be important for you to open it. Look at verse 31 and verse 42. Well, that's the first verse we read and the last verse we read, right? That's like the, the bookends. Think of them as the bookends of the two sections that we just read. And you will see that they have something in common. At the beginning... And at the end, John reminds us of something. He reminds us that this is the day of Jewish preparation. Now, he also said the same thing back in verse 14 of chapter 19. So it's over and over again. It's almost repetitive. John is saying... It's the day of preparation, the day of his death, the day of his burial. It's the day of preparation three times. It's the day of preparation. It's the day of preparation. What's he doing? Don't forget as you read this. Don't forget. It is the day of preparation. Remember, that means that at this very hour of his death and of his burial, that the Jews are preparing for the Passover meal. John does not want you to forget that. Hey, Jesus is being killed. He's being buried. At that very hour, what are the Jews doing? It's the day of preparation. It's Friday night before the Passover. They are preparing for the Passover meal. Well, what does that mean? What was involved in their preparations? That's what you want to know. 
What are the Jews doing on this night? Well, to find that out, you'd have to go back to, and I'll just summarize some of it. You'd have to go back to Exodus chapter 11 and chapter 12 and read the instructions that God gave his people on that very first Passover that they were to keep doing every single year. So you remember the story. I hope your kids know the story. You love the story. God rescued his people from bondage in Egypt in the most amazing way. Moses comes in on behalf of God. Let my people go. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, no. Who do you think you are? So what does God do? God sends these plagues on Egypt to bend Pharaoh's will, to to break Pharaoh's will. So one morning they wake up and the river has turned to blood. Just imagine that. Imagine this afternoon, it's hot, maybe you're going to go to the American River, maybe you go out to the Sacramento River, and you go to the river and the river has become thick blood. That's not the only plague. He sent flies, he sent boils, painful boils on everyone. He sent hail from the sky. He sent complete and total darkness. And then, you remember the last plague? God sent Moses with a threat to Pharaoh and says, if you do not let these people go, God's going to come down and he is going to kill every firstborn in Egypt. Even the firstborn, remember, cows. They're all going to die if you don't let my people go. Pharaoh calls his bluff and says, I'm not budging. I don't believe it. So God goes through Moses and, and, and God comes to his people. He says, Moses, here's what I, here's what I want you to Tell your people, this is very important what I'm about to do. You're going to tell your kids about this forever. And he starts off by saying, this is, a, this is now the first month for you guys, Moses says. Your year starts right now. This is now the first month. On the 10th day of this month, God says, I want all of you, every single family, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to find the best lamb you can find. Find a lamb, he said, without blemish on the 10th day of this month. I want you to take it into your home. And then on the 14th day of this month, I want you to kill this lamb. On the 14th day of this month, I want you to kill this lamb. And I want you to have a family meal. And I want you to eat that lamb. Then he tells him, and I want, to take you, I want you to take blood from this lamb. And take this blood and go out in front of your house. And find your front door and find the posts. And I want you to spread the blood 
on the posts of your door. And then find something to stand on and take more blood and spread the blood of this lamb over your door. And then that night, that night the Lord is going to come and he is going to pass through and he is going to kill every firstborn. And he said there has never been a cry like the cries that will be heard that night. But then he says this about his people, not even a dog will growl at you guys. Not even a dog will growl. And as the Lord is passing through, he will pass over the homes of his people, which have the blood of the lamb over their door. The Lord said through Moses to the people, this is so important. The Lord said to his people, Listen, when I see the blood of your lamb, I will pass over you. That's what he said. It's in Exodus 12. When I see the blood of your lamb, I will pass over you. And of course, I'm going to rescue you and And then he says in chapter 12 of Exodus, verses 26 and verse 27, make sure that you tell your children about this. Don't forget about this. Don't let them forget about this over and over and over again. Okay, so we come back to our text now. We know here's what Passover is. Now we come back to our text. Listen, the Jews are preparing Passover lambs. Can you handle this? Can you handle what John is about to show us right now? This day of preparation. Don't forget. As you read it, this is the day of preparation. The day of preparation. Jews, you know what that means, right? Veritas Church, get your Bibles open. You know what? Find out what that means. That means the Jews are preparing Passover lambs. The Jews are shedding the blood of lambs to commemorate that Passover night we just talked about from Exodus 12. The night they were spared because of the blood of the lambs which was shed on the doorposts of their homes. Okay, This just gets better. Guess what? Guess what? As the Jews are in town preparing a Passover lamb and Passover lambs, they are being very careful with the lambs. Listen, they are being very careful with these lambs. They are being very careful to follow God's specific instructions given to them back in Exodus 12 46. Do you know, according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, what they are being very careful to do? It shall be eaten, the Passover lambs, in one house. 
you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. So here are the Jews in Jerusalem with their Passover lambs carefully slaughtering them so as not to break any of their bones. And what did John just tell us in verse 36? I was there. And they didn't break any bones. John, what are you showing us? Jesus is the true Passover lamb. That's the gold. That's the gold. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And so there's John at the foot of the cross. And, and, and what did John look up and what did John look up and see as the blood of lambs was being shed in the temple in Jerusalem? He saw blood. Verse 35, he says, I saw it. I saw it. I was there. I know it's true that you may believe. The blood of lambs is being shed in the temple at the very moment the blood of Jesus is spilling out of his side. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb. So friends, do you see do you see what John is showing you this morning? Do you see it? If you are here today and you do not believe you are not a disciple of Jesus, I would pray that God would give you the grace this morning to come to him. That he would give you the grace to come to him, to believe in him, and to receive the free gift of eternal life. Eternal life that you will not get through church attendance or good deeds or worldly accomplishments, but you will only receive as a lost sinner in need of grace. As we read about the cross, as you hear God's word proclaim to you that Jesus is the true Passover lamb, believe this morning that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. That you should not be spared. You should suffer what Egypt suffered. We're all that firstborn. We are under the wrath of God. We have been sinning against him for as long as we could sin. Disregarding him, denying him, disobeying him, going our own way. And we have sinned against a God who is 
perfectly holy and righteous. And the right and just punishment for you and I is eternal, not life, but death. Alienation from God, not reconciliation to Him. That is what we deserve. My blood should be shed. Your blood should be shed. But Jesus is the true Passover Lamb. And by His blood, you could be passed over. If you see that this morning, you will be changed. If you see the cross for what it is, you will be changed. It changed Joseph and Nicodemus. It changed them. Were you thinking about Joseph and Nicodemus as we're reading that? I mean... While the Jews are preparing Passover lambs, Joseph and Nicodemus were carefully handling the Passover lamb. Joseph and Nicodemus have gone public with their faith. Did you hear what it said about Joseph of Arimathea? He was a secret disciple of Jesus. Not anymore. You just had a member of the Sanhedrin go and ask for the body of Jesus so that he could bury him in his family tomb. Now think about this. This is the moment that you would expect followers of Christ to go into hiding. (laughs) That's what many of them did. You expect the disciples to go into hiding. Joseph and Nicodemus, they've been hiding. And now they come out of hiding. They become bold. Nicodemus and Joseph are both presented to us as men that were timid with their faith. Nicodemus is sneaking around in the dark going to visit Jesus, keeping his maturing faith, belief on the down low, sort of defending Jesus. But now here he is coming from the dark of John chapter 3 into the light in John chapter 19. These men are bold now. They have been changed. Jesus has died, but they have been made alive. When Jesus was alive, these men hid their faith. Now that Jesus is dead, they boldly risked their lives How do you account for that? They have seen the cross. They have seen the cross. Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon from this text, the cross is a wondrous magnet drawing to Jesus every man of the true metal. It's true. The cross is a wondrous magnet. You cannot see the cross this morning and not be changed. Not if you see it for what it is. Not if you see hanging on that cross the true Passover lamb.
What about those of you, in conclusion, who are believers? Thou already believe this. By God's grace, you know. You know that Jesus is your true Passover lamb. Now let me try to encourage you with this text that we read today. To do that, I have to borrow a little story that I heard uh, Don Carson say about the first Passover. And so he asks us, and, and I would ask you, especially those of you who are believers here this morning, to imagine that, that first Passover night. Imagine being one of those Israelites. Imagine a conversation between two men, between two heads of households on that afternoon, the evening before the Passover. And imagine one of those men saying to the other, I'm pretty nervous right now. I'm pretty anxious right now. How are, how are you doing? And the other one says, I'm fine. I'm fine. God said it. I trust him. I'm good. Well, I mean, what about the, I mean, you've seen these plagues. I mean, the river is turned into blood, the, the flies, the, the darkness, and, and, and now this promise that the Lord is going to come and he's going to kill every firstborn. This is, this is scary stuff. You're not, you're not nervous? No, I'm not, I'm not nervous. Well, well, you've got several children. I've, I only have one son. I only have one son. You're not, you're not nervous that you're going to lose one of your sons. No, but the, the Lord told us what to do. The Lord told us what to do. I mean, have you done what the Lord told you to do? Have you, have you, have you killed the lamb? Have you spread the blood on your doorposts? And have you, have you, has your family, are you guys going to eat the meal tonight? And, well, yeah, we've, we've done that. We've done all that, but I'm still, I'm frightened. I'm worried. I'm anxious about this night. Now on that night, which one of those men will lose a son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because those families, those homes that night would not be spared because of what was in the home. What did the Lord say? I will see the blood. And I will pass over you. Many of you struggle with assurance. You're that nervous guy. You're that anxious gal. And there's a place for you in God's family. 
You are not alone. But you need to be assured and understand that if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer of the gospel, then you will be spared because of the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus is the ground of your assurance, not your performance. In conclusion, let me just read this verse from the hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, for those who are here this morning who do not believe, God, I pray that you would give them the grace to believe today. I pray, God, that their hearts would be opened, and their minds would understand the truth of your gospel in your word today. And I pray that lives would be changed forever today. God, for those who are here and who are believers, God, I pray that they would be encouraged that Jesus is their true Passover lamb, that his work is finished, his blood has been shed, and as Revelation talks about, we will conquer the enemy by his blood, the blood of Jesus, the blood of the lamb. So God, give people assurance today that the ground of their salvation is the blood of Jesus. God, we do love you. We continue to commit our ways to you. Give us the strength and the courage to do all that you have called us to do. And we give you all glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.